Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, before we open to our passage and begin, I, I want to uh, use the fact that we're all gathered to put a plug in. I want to strongly encourage you, if you were not here this morning in Adult Sunday School, um, I want to strongly encourage you to go onto the site, pull that down, and listen to that this week. Uh, we were taught very carefully and thoroughly uh, concerning the spiritual gifts that God has given to his local churches. And it was a wonderful reminder of his purposes for the church, his intentions for us corporately, uh, and in particular of the ways, fact, that he has equipped you, if you are in Christ, to meaningfully contribute and serve and be a blessing, a rich blessing to those around you. It was a wonderful reminder, uh, and it will be a blessing to you. So let me encourage you, if you weren't here, to please go and listen to that. If it leads you to want to start coming and to be uh, a part of the rest of that series, all the better. That was, I think, number two of seven. Is that right, Ryan? So we've got a ways to go. But let me encourage you to do that. Okay, so then let me invite you to turn again with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 2 this morning, starting in verse 1. He has been, the Apostle John has been uh, really aiming our attention at a particular question since chapter 1, verse 1. He has been very busy in a number of ways answering the question that he's going to tell us in chapter 20, verse 31, was his whole purpose for writing this gospel. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? He's answered that in a number of ways, and he's going to continue doing that this morning as we come to this next passage. We'll look at verses 1 to 11 this morning. Uh, before we read and uh, begin in chapter 2, I do think this is a good time to draw attention to something that has been present since chapter 1, verse 29. And I, I wonder if, if this repetitive thing John's been doing has caught your attention at points here. Have you noticed John's meticulous schedule keeping that he's been doing up to this point? Uh, look at verse 19 of chapter 1, since you're open there. Uh, this began a series of events. Verse 19, we read, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites, and he proceeds to tell us about the events of that day. Verse 29, I'll just point out a few places. Please just jump down with me with your eyes. Verse 29, he says, The next day, and he gives the account, Verse 35, the next day again, verse 39, tells us that at that point it was the 10th hour, it's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so they stay with him the rest of that day, uh, and then there's another day after that. Verse 43 then says again, the next day, and now starting our passage this morning, chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, that is to say, that day, and two more days with it. So three on the third day inclusively. This is how they count their passing of days, right? Which is how Jesus can die on a Friday and be raised on the third day and yet still be raised on a Sunday. This is how they count their passing of days. You add those up, and what you find is we have been receiving here a meticulous description of the first seven days of Jesus' public ministry. The 
announcing and prefiguring and preparing the way on the part of, of uh, John the Baptist and then all of these events, he has been giving us a set of seven days worth of information. And after this point, after this uh, very meticulous, the next day kind of chronology, one day at a time, in the 20 chapters that are left in the Gospel of John, the phrase, the next day, is going to show up twice in the next 20 chapters. This is not, he's not doing this because this is his writing habit, that he just, he just, uh, chrono, he just um, categorizes time and, and gives this level of detail on a day-to-day basis. It's not his habit that we're seeing here. He's doing something on purpose, and it's quite creative, and it's quite effective. What we're seeing here is what many call, and have long called, the first week of the new creation. Jesus coming to earth and ministering, revealing God in this absolutely unique way, this is the inbreaking. We've been seeing this already. The inbreaking of the new into the old. The inbreaking of God's kingdom into this world. It's an invasion of new into old. And he's been couching his narrative in these terms from the beginning, hasn't he? How did he start this gospel? He started it by intentionally likening it to the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the word. He's, He's been getting at this from the start. There's something fundamentally new about what is coming when Christ comes. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If we're counting these days, then we've arrived at the seventh day. We've arrived at the end of this initial week. And it is very fitting then that the miracle we're going to see performed this morning, what he'll call the first sign that Jesus will perform, is going to represent the significance of his coming in just those terms and just as vividly, the coming of newness. In fact, as we look at these first 11 verses this morning, there are going to be three displays of newness that we need to give attention to. What we'll do is we'll break up these 11 verses into three pieces so that we can see each of these three uh, displays of newness. Verses 1 to 5, we'll see Jesus and Mary, and we'll see newness there. Verses 6 to 10, Jesus and the servants, we could call it, I suppose, and we'll see newness there. And then verse 11, regarding Jesus and his disciples, we will see newness. Let's hear this read aloud together. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, John 2, verses 1 to 11. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. 
Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The first appearance of new comes between Jesus and Mary, his mother. Uh, We find it in the context of a wedding celebration here. Back in verse 43 of chapter 1, Jesus and his disciples had gone to Galilee. That's the region. And here in verse 1, they've been invited to attend a wedding in Cana. We've seen already, that's one of the small towns in the region of Galilee. Uh, This seems to be clearly the wedding of a close family friend of Jesus's because Jesus is invited and his mother is also invited. And in fact, she seems to be helping put the wedding on uh, in some way. She is in a position to give direction to the servants that are responsible for administering uh, the festivities. And what we need to notice here comes in the exchange between the two of them. Look with me at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. I've been surprised to learn this week that this running out of wine was actually a much bigger deal than I had realized. It, 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 was, it is certainly the cause for a great social embarrassment in a shame-based society like this. Uh, the groom's family is supposed to have planned this out well. There's a great deal of expectation around what is supposed to happen in these celebrations, which can last a week in length. Uh, But it's more than just a socially embarrassing situation that they're about to be confronted with. They're in a position, this is interesting to me, they're actually open to a potential lawsuit in this situation. It seems like it's associated financially with the gifts that are going to be brought for the wedding, and there's an expectation of a certain celebration that's provided then to the guests. Uh, there is, uh, they are subject to a lawsuit here if they fail to provide uh, the expected experience surrounding this. And incidentally, the fact that, that even with that potential pressure, the fact that they have run out of wine here as the wedding is winding down, it seems, seems to indicate that this is a poor family that we're dealing with here. They had limited means to provide for this big feast and, it, and in fact, they found that they're not, they were not able to. The wedding is not finished, but the wine has run out. So there's this problem that sets up the occasion here. And in response to the problem, Mary instinctively comes to her son for a resolution to this uh, tangible, practical problem. And the question of what she's actually expecting him to do is a difficult one, because we're not told all that much in this account. Uh, There are two possibilities 
uh, that, that some will go one way or the other. Let me just share both of these with you. It could be that she is expecting some kind of a miraculous response to this situation. That's possible. She has not forgotten the prophecies that she received uh, in his, uh, in, during the pregnancy, uh, angelic prophecies, prophecies from human prophets. There has been great expectation concerning this child who would grow uh, and the role that he would play. And we're told early on that she treasured those things up in her heart. She's pondering these things as he's growing. He's 30 years old now. She's certainly aware of the events of the past week, which are a huge deal. The whole, the whole country is talking about this, essentially. John the Baptist has named him as the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. You think Mary hasn't heard of that? There's a lot going on in her mind in these recent days especially. And she may be waiting expectantly for some great demonstration of power. Like I say, that's possible. There is no clear evidence of that. And I think it is equally possible that Mary has simply learned to rely on her son Jesus' resourcefulness. Her instinct is to turn to her oldest son to take care of problems when they arise. Many think she was already a widow at this point perhaps for a long time, which would have only increased the, this sort of a dependent relationship that would be there between her and her eldest son. That's very understandable to us. Either of those are possible. Uh, I, I think we're being distracted if we spend too much time trying to guess at Mary's motive, because that's clearly not where we're supposed to be drawing our attention here. John's point, as he's describing this, is that Mary is dealing with a problem of social practicality, and she is speaking to her son about it as if their relationship hasn't changed. She's coming to her son to resolve this problem as if their relationship is fundamentally that of mother to son. That's what explains the dialogue that they're entering into here. She comes to him. Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus gently, much more gently than it sounds to us, he gently puts her at arm's length. He is teaching his mother that their relationship has changed as he has been called to the public ministry that he has now begun. Verse 4, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He addresses her as woman. There's no way for us to say that or hear that without it sounding harsh and uncomfortable, you need to know that in terms of the way that they would speak with one another, this is not a harsh or rude address for him to give to her. It's not the way it would have been received. He's going to call her that again. You know when else he will call Mary by this designation? Woman? He'll call her that as he's hanging on the cross. as he is charging the care of her to the author of this book, to the Apostle John. An extremely tender moment. Now, this, is not, this is not rude in any sense. However, it is not an address that is common to find, even in their culture, a son using to address his mother. That, that we don't see. A son speaking to his mother and saying, woman, it's not because it was rude, it's because it does not describe the relationship 
of a son to a mother. Do you see the difference? So what we have here then is Mary interacting as a mother normally would and her son deliberately not doing so as he answers her, gently demonstrating to her that now that his ministry has begun, their relationship has to change. One commentator put it very well, I think. He said, evidently, Mary thought of the intimate relations of the home at Nazareth as persisting. But Jesus, in his public ministry, was not only or primarily the son of Mary, but the son of man, who was to bring the realities of heaven to people on earth. A new relationship was established. Mary must not presume. And what's interesting is, and so encouraging, is she seems to respond to this. She accepts his reply. Notice, she doesn't come back to him again. She doesn't pester him. She accepts his reply, and then she turns to the servants and instructs them to do whatever he would tell them to do. It's easy to read into that comment, too, I think. There's no uh, sense here at all of some sort of manipulative action on Mary's part, where she's, she didn't get the answer she wants, so she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you, and she's trying to manipulate Jesus into having to act. There's no sense of that here. We're reading into it if we hear that. What she's doing is she's demonstrating confidence and trust in both his ability and his judgment to do what ought to be done. It's as if she responds to Jesus as a mother in verse 3 and as a believer in verse 5. This is helpful to hear and understand. And this is, I would say in this passage, the first display of the kind of newness that is coming out in these 11 verses. It's a newness from Jesus to Mary concerning their relationship. Now, we're not finished with this piece, though. We still have to wrestle with a question. I hope it's a question that occurred to you as we were reading this aloud. How did his reply relate at all to her statement? Jesus, they have no wine. Well, my hour has not come yet. What's the, what's the connection here? Is there a connection? He's going to say that over and over again in this gospel, that his hour has not yet come until after chapter 12. And we've talked a lot in this series early on about the structure of what the Apostle John is doing in this letter. We know that at the end of chapter 12, what's happened is Jesus has given the last of the signs that God has given him to deliver so that they might see and believe who he is. He has raised Lazarus from the dead, and now they're planning to kill him. And let's kill Lazarus too while we're at it, if we can. After that point, Jesus' comments about his hour change. Now, at that point, his hour is drawing near. Now, at that point, and as we go closer to his death, his hour has come. So as he's preparing for and marching to the cross, he will say then that his hour has arrived. So it's a statement that's a reference to his glorious death. Really, you could say it's a reference to all of his, of his ministry on behalf of sinners, but culminating in the cross. Now I ask again, in what way did this relate to her statement about needing wine? And what I want to do is to simply share with you what D.A. Carson has written about this connection, because I find it very helpful, and I'm not going to say it better than he did. 
I find it persuasive as well. See if you follow the point that he's making here. Why did Jesus answer her statement like he did? So he's going to argue here that Jesus is doing something that he will do throughout this gospel. He's taking a mundane comment and replying to it with a prophetic, a symbolic, but a relevant statement. So he's going to, many times in this, in this account, he's going, to be, he's going to be told something that has a tremendous typological whole Bible significance, and that person who said it isn't thinking that way at all. They're just talking about something pertaining to the day or their situation. But Jesus sees that statement in all of its potential use according to Scripture, and often he will respond then in a way that does fit that situation, but it is prophetic at the same time. Listen to what Carson writes. Although Mary probably laid out the need for wine in mundane terms, she doesn't mean anything else by it, they've run out, it is typical of Jesus to detect more symbolism in various utterances than the speaker envisioned. Mary wants the wedding to end without embarrassment. Jesus remembers that the prophets characterized the messianic age as a time when wine would flow liberally. Jeremiah 31.12, Hosea 14.7, Amos 9.13. Elsewhere, he himself adapts the wedding as a symbol for the consummation of the messianic age. Treating the developing circumstances in Cana right then as an acted parable Jesus is, t- is entirely correct to say that the hour of great wine, the hour of his glorification, has not yet come. You see what he's doing? He's saying more than she was asking, but it very much relates to the statement that she just made. This is a point that we need to understand. These passages point prophetically, the ones that Carson just referenced in the Old Testament, to the consummation of all things. How does... God describe that, that we're all waiting for and longing for. How does he describe that in the Old Testament? Let me just read a couple of those to you. Amos 9, 13 and 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel, They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Carson didn't list Joel 3.18, but this one is is, uh, very clear as well. Here's what it says there. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. You see the, the imagery that's being used in reference to what God is going to do in Christ, by the time he's finished with his work. The culmination of all things in those ways isn't here yet in John chapter 2, is it? It's not here yet. And yet, because of God's sovereignty in his plan with his son, and yet, when Jesus is here in his ministry, it is inevitable that this will happen. How? Hmm. How can I signify what I am going to do? Hmm. Maybe by commanding into existence 180 gallons of wine. Maybe that's how I can paint this picture at this moment since we're in a wedding. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. 
we're getting ahead of ourselves. What we have here then in verses 1 to 5 is a display that after 30 years of life, Jesus' life, working as a carpenter, caring for his mother, now that the messianic ministry has begun, he is no longer to be regarded in merely natural terms. He's doing what the gospel writer has been doing the entire time up to now. He is pushing us to a decision. Who am I? Who is Jesus? How am I to think of him? How am I to regard him? There's a lot of relation, I think, to Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5.16. He wrote there, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And so there's this newness that Jesus is gently bringing to Mary, a newness of the way in which Jesus is to be regarded. There's going to be a long line of individuals in John's gospel who will mistakenly interact with him on purely human levels. We're going to see it with Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, uh, various people that he heals, Martha, the uh, sister of Lazarus. And time and time again, what Jesus will be doing is he will be setting himself apart through these interactions, revealing who he is in the process. So there's some newness that we see just in his conversation with Mary. Coming into verse 6, we come now to the main event itself of this passage. And for as big a piece of the section as this is, this is verses 6 to 10, we can be satisfied with really commenting on just a few particular elements of this. Let me reread verses 6 to 10 here for us. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding... 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, I want to be sure that we all understand something at the outset of this. It's very important for us to have clear, as we're asking the question that we need to ask about this passage. We have to be settled in our understanding. That in any of the ways that we hold Jesus in our minds through this gospel, in any of those ways that we're holding him in our minds that seem comparable to a magician that we can go watch in Las Vegas or at a kid's birthday party, we are missing the point. We are missing something substantial. This is the first example, and it's a very helpful one. What Jesus is doing in this event. He is not looking around at that wedding for something that he thinks will be a useful prop for a particularly impressive performance. God can make children for Abraham out of the stones on the side of the road. Jesus can change the nature of reality at a spoken word. What that means is that when we read an account like this, it can be, we don't have to wrestle with something. Jesus is not choosing his demonstration and choosing the props for that demonstration as a matter of convenience. 
What he is doing, he is doing with great intentionality. So, what do we see? Well, Jewish, uh, excuse me, Jesus directs the servants to the six Jewish purification jars that are standing nearby. These are huge stone jars. They hold from 120 to 180 gallons of water collectively. You use these uh, water sources in order to have, uh, in order to be able to cleanse yourself ceremonially and not be made unclean. So the fact that they're stone is significant and not clay, for example. And they're used to wash hands and feet at various points. Uh, William Barclay explains that what you did is you washed your feet first when you came in, th- out of, with using water from these jars. You washed your hands before a meal. You washed your hands in between courses of a meal. And you washed them by holding your fingers up and letting water run down and off your wrists, and then flipping them and letting the water run from wrist to finger and fall down. You would do this as you're engaging in this ceremony. And if you didn't do that, then your hands were technically unclean to be used. This is all according to Jewish stipulation in the Old Testament. He orders those jars filled, and it's emphasized that they're filled, isn't it? Verse 7, they're filled to the brim. Nothing but water in these jars. And when that water is drawn out again from those Jewish purification jars and given to the master of the feast, it has been transformed. And he is so impressed by the quality of the wine that it has now become that he summons the groom specifically to compliment him on this. That's what happens. What is Jesus saying about himself? He's telling us something about himself. What's he telling us? Well, one thing's for sure. We're supposed to take from this much more than simply a report of a miracle in general. Jesus is rarely, if ever, just demonstrating power for its own sake. He is teaching. He is the teacher sent to us from God. Always he is teaching about who he is. That's what these signs are meant to do. That's why Jesus will later point to his works and say, we ought to believe he is who he says he is based on the works that he has been performing. So what's he teaching us about himself here? He's taking the waters of Jewish purification, filling them to the brim and transforming them. Someone once said of this, the water representing the old order of Jewish law and custom Jesus was to replace with something better. Something better. And that's right. But it doesn't go far enough. It's more than something better. That purification was prescribed as a physical way of sanctifying God's people so that he might dwell in their midst, so that they may be allowed to dwell in the land that God had given them. A holy God is dwelling in the midst of his people. The whole ceremonial system of Judaism was about answering the question, how on earth is that possible? How can a holy God dwell amid a sinful people? And what you have in these purification laws is something of a stopgap. The practice of which always produced the glaring conclusion, or was meant to, that something greater was going to have to come. 
doesn't matter how many times I keep washing my hands ceremonially, I keep having to do it again. It doesn't matter how many of these sheep and lamb and goats have to die for my sins, I keep having to do it again. Something greater is going to have to come. And if Jesus has come, the result of his work will be that the unclean will be made clean, and not just clean, but holy before the Lord. That purification water won't be needed, and what will replace it, in fact, will be the celebratory wine of a marriage feast. So I also don't think it's any coincidence that he has chosen the setting of a wedding for this sign. This graduation, this culmination and fulfillment that Jesus is about to bring to Judaism will produce celebration. And wine is all about celebration in Scripture. So if we're speaking this morning about newness, this sign is all about a foreshadowing of the work that Christ is going to bring and the newness that will result. Now, we need to remember what we've just said and what we've seen in verses 6 to 10 and carry it with us into verse 11. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John draws this recounting to a conclusion. How will he conclude this? The event is called the first of Jesus' signs. There is more to come. And John says there are two things in particular about, the, uh, about this event that are significant and worthy of notice. He says, first, he says, this was a manifestation of Jesus' glory. You remember chapter 1, verse 14? And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw then he's speaking directly in reference to the Old Testament. He's speaking about divine glory on display. But it is possible to see the sign and miss the glory, isn't it? In fact, many will do that as we go through this gospel. They will see the sign and they will miss the glory. Jesus' glory is the revelation of God in and through him. And I want us to emphasize that for a minute. The revelation of the glory of God in Christ can be missed if he does not grant eyes to see. We've already read John 1.18, haven't we? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. Jesus will be recorded as saying in Matthew eleven twenty seven. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And that can be hard to accept. If it's hard to accept that this is a, a demonstration of God's glory that is missed on the part of many, even in this case in chapter 2, that it is witnessed by those whom Christ has enabled to see it. If that's hard to accept. We have to at least admit that this manifestation of God's glory was hidden in this instance from whom? The entire world, except for a 
select few at a dinner party in the town of Cana. Everyone else missed this display of God's glory. An author by the name of Ken Geyer put it well. He said, that glory was not revealed at the imperial palace in Rome or at Herod's temple in Jerusalem or at the Acropolis in Athens, but here in an impoverished village of Cana, nestled away in an obscure corner of Galilee. And the fact that this is a revelation of God's glory come near to people, to men, to mankind. It fits perfectly with the sign itself that he has just displayed. Because if God draws near in Christ, if the distance between him and us is breached and God the Son, Jesus Christ, draws near to us, the fact of that means that the waters of purification have just become outmoded and need replacing with celebration wine. Just like, as Matthew is going to record as well, the temple curtain. You remember what happened to the temple curtain at the death of Christ? The purification water is outmoded in the same way that the temple curtain is outmoded when Jesus dies. There is no longer something separating God's people from him. We no longer must wash with purification water to become clean because in our baptism into Christ, we have become holy. Holy before the Lord. And the holy God now draws near to us. And from the beginning here, Jesus gives to some eyes to see his glory. We read this, the disciples by faith this is not in John 2. This is, this is another description here. The disciples by faith perceived Jesus' glory behind the sign, and they put their faith in him. You see it explicitly there at the end of verse 11. What did the, the, the disciples do at the witness of this sign? They perceived the, the divine glory, and they believed in him. That's the first thing that we need to see there. The second, and finally, we are meant to recognize that for the disciples, this response that they exhibit to this glorious sign, what the Apostle John emphasizes here verbally to us is that that response was nothing short of faith. They believed in him. It is genuine faith. It is not a comprehending faith, and we will see that in this gospel as the disciples continue to be uh, described in how they act and how they respond, there is not anything like complete comprehension here. They believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They're concluding already, aren't they, that Jesus is the Christ. We've already heard Andrew say that. We've heard Philip say it. We've heard Nathaniel call Jesus the Son of God. But they had not ever yet up to this point, seeing his divine glory on display like they see it in this sign. And when they see it here, they believe. And my friends, I hope and pray that you sense the connection point that that brings for all of God's people here this morning. If you believe this morning, 